I think there's a great diversity in the Christian tradition as to what constitutes sanctification. So I'm going to start off by asking a simple question. What is sanctification? Anyone, it's open to the floor, so anyone can answer. What is sanctification? Yeah, you're asking. I'm asking. <laughs> okay, Pastor Paul says a man that is set apart for God. That's a good answer. Um, so there's two words, uh, monergism and synergism. Monergism means simply means working alone. Synergism means working together. Um, So it's imperative that we, we uh, keep these notions distinct when talking about, uh, com- when comparing and contrasting justification and sanctification. So justification is monergistic. Justification is the declaration of our right standing before God by no merit of our own. So God graciously pardons a guilty sinner, exempts the pardon from the penalty of his sin, and regards the sinner to be righteous. So justification is also where God grants us the imputed righteousness of Christ. And this is also referred to as the forensic righteousness. And it's a single, judicial, completed act done outside of the individual. As R.C. Sproul states, the ground of your justification is the perfect works of Jesus Christ. And so we do no works in our justification, but we passively receive what God grants us to us in Christ Jesus. Now, when we receive his righteousness, we can stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ and, we'll be, and we will be secure before God as Christ is himself. Now, why is this the case? Because we possess his righteousness by imputation through our union with Christ. So his righteousness is really ours. So that, so that declaration of us as righteous is true. So justification is monogistic, whereas sanctification is a process whereby we grow in godliness and holiness over time. Joe Beakey defines sanctification as synergistic. He writes, Sanctification is synergistic. That is, it is a cooperation of God and the believer working to produce actual holiness. Failing to see the synergism of sanctification results in two potential errors, either passivity and waiting for God to do it all or frustrating hyperactivity by trying to do it all alone. Wayne Grudem, further elaborating on the concept of synergism and cooperation, writes that some object to saying that God and man cooperate in sanctification because they want to insist that God's work is primary and our work is secondary. However, if we explain the nature of God's role and our role in sanctification, uh, clearly it doesn't seem inappropriate to say that God and man cooperate in sanctification. Now, cooperation does not mean that we have equal roles to play in sanctification or that we both operate in the same ways. It's simply emphasizing the reality that we cooperate with God in the ways that are appropriate to our status as God's creatures. The Puritan John Owens writes, The Holy Spirit works in us and with us, not against us or without us, so that his assistance is an encouragement as to the facilitating of his work and no occasion of neglect as to the work itself. So the math of sanctification is a mystery. 
Some say that the cooperation of sanctification is 50% us and 50% God, or others would say it's 100% God and 0% us. Um, I believe what's consistent with the scriptures and with our confessions is what uh, Richard B. Gaffin says. He notes that it's 100% us and 100% God. Now, we also see that there's a distinction between justification and sanctification. One is monogistic, meaning God works alone, whereas the other, namely sanctification, is synergistic, meaning two parties are working. Now, there's also an inseparable union between justification and sanctification. The two are linked. Well, Hemis Brakel, in his systematic theology entitled The Christian's Reasonable Service, writes that justification and sanctification always coexist in a believer. Where the one is, the other will also be present. One should entertain no notions about justification if he does not at the same time possess the principle of sanctification. Neither ought he to have any notions that he is a partaker of true sanctification if he is not justified and if he does not earnestly seek this by faith in Christ. Dr. Sproul writes that sanctification follows justification necessarily, inevitably, and immediately. Therefore, the concept that a person can be justified and show no fruit of holiness in their life is a completely foreign concept to what is taught in Scripture. If you are a Christian who has been declared righteous before God, you will show the fruit of good works and your life will display holiness. It's an inevitable reality. So in justification, God gives us an imputed righteousness, but in sanctification, God gives within us an infused righteousness, or also referred to as habitual righteousness, or evangelical righteousness, or imparted righteousness, or inherent righteousness. So I'll repeat that again. In justification, we're given an uh, imputed righteousness. In sanctification, we're given an infused righteousness. Um, so in the scriptures, we can see infused righteousness, an example like uh, Matthew 5.20, where Christ says, or I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Christ is saying, unless you have the possession of an infused righteousness that is greater than the Pharisees, or in other words, if you are not truly holy, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. This righteousness, which is distinct from the imputed righteousness given to us at justification, can be understood as an ongoing process of sanctification, whereby believers enabled by the Holy Spirit progressively grow in conformity to Christ's character and show righteous behavior as a result of their faith. It involves the development of holy habits, patterns of thought, and actions that align with God's moral standards. So, Reformed theology emphasizes that this righteousness is not inherent to believers in the sense of being a natural or innate quality, but it's infused by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's a transformational process that occurs within the believer as they are conformed to the image of Christ. Simply put, uh, I think the best way to put it, infused righteousness is a righteousness that is similar to the term godliness. Um, And so our godliness grows as God sanctifies us. So the Christian has two types of righteousness. One is infused righteousness, and another is imputed righteousness of Christ. Now, how is the Reformed understanding of infused righteousness distinct from the Roman Catholic uh, theology or the neonomian view of Richard Baxter? In the Roman Catholic view, God would never declare a person just until that person has an infused righteousness or is inherently just. So in uh, Roman Catholic theology, there's two justification, whereas in um, Reformed theology, there's one justification. Um, so in that view, a person has to be sanctified before he can be justified. 
Dr. Sproul notes that the doctrine of justification by faith alone affirms that we can be just before we are righteous. We are justified because of someone else's righteousness, namely the righteousness of Christ. So many people erroneously believe that sanctification leads to justification, that we can make ourselves acceptable to God by our own efforts to obey him, or that justification is by faith alone, but um, sanctification is all about trying to please God by obeying his commands. Pastor Bob. Yeah, to a degree, yeah, I think so. Yep. Pa- Pastor Bob said in Roman Catholic theology, they conflate sanctification and justification. So the two are co- intermingled. Um, so we've seen the Roman Catholic error, but what about the errors of the neonomianism? In the neonomianism of Richard Baxter, uh, he taught that we are not justified by faith alone, but also by our love for Christ and our inherent righteousness through sanctification. Now, the Reformed Orthodox would strongly disagree with Baxter on his view that we are justified by our inherent righteousness. They would contend that justification is by faith alone. John Davenant, in his treatise on justification, which was commended by John Owen, writes that, we acknowledge that God infuses a righteousness in the very act of justifying, but we deny that the sentence of God in justifying has respect to this as the cause by which man is constituted justified. So Davenant, the Bishop of Salisbury, would argue that God definitely infuses a righteousness in us, but that righteousness does not justify us. Francis Turretin, a Reformed Scholastic, writes, God justifies no one without equally sanctifying him and giving inherent righteousness by the creating of a new man in true righteousness and holiness. Are there any questions before I move on or comments? Okay, yeah. Um, the new perspective on Paul. I haven't studied it too much, so I, I don't, yeah. Um, so I'll definitely look into that. Is there, are, are there any other questions? Neonomianism. Uh, N-E-O-N-O-M-I-A-N-I-S-M. So it's a new law. It, neo means new, law, nomos means law, so it's a new law. It's just the etymology of the word. No, it's a, it's, I think it's a theology of Richard Baxter. He was, he was like in the 16th, 17th century. He's a theologian then. I think he's a, he has, a, he has some great works. Um, he definitely has good works on sanctification, but his views on certain areas uh, are definitely heterodox. heterodox. So, um, so I want to get into God's works in sanctification. All of God's works or works at extra outside of him with respect to creatures are common to all three persons of the Trinity. Now, it's important to note that all of God's works were, with respect to creatures follow a Trinitarian model. The works proceed from the Father through the Son in the Spirit. Now, a cer- now, certain divine works are often specially associated with the persons, certain persons of the Trinity. For example, Scripture especially identifies the Father as the author of the divine decree. That's in Ephesians 1, 4-5. And as the agent of decree, Ephesians 3, 9. 
And R. Scott Squain, in his book entitled An Introduction to the Trinity, writes, Scripture specially identifies the Son as the agent of redemption. Now, Scripture specially identifies the Spirit as the agent of sanctification, that is, the one who dwells within us, applies the effects of God's redeeming work to us, and causes us to call upon God's name. So holiness in the Christian life is only possible when the Holy Spirit works in us. The Holy Spirit affirms this, and we can see it in being made clear in the Apostles' Creed when we affirm that I believe in the forgiveness of sins. So God washes our iniquity away, and this gives us assurance that we not only have the right to eternal life, but are his children who do not have to fear his vindictive condemnations. So the Holy Spirit binds this truth to our hearts so that we don't have to live in bondage. The Puritans also had a deeply Trinitarian understanding of sanctification. They understood that there are three ways in which we relate to the person of the Trinity. Firstly, believers are to imitate the character of God by walking in love, Ephesians 5.1 and 1 John 4.16. Secondly, they ought to conform to the image of Christ by living in obedience to the Father's will. In Christ, we not only possess an example of a total life of true holiness, but he is also the source of holiness. Thirdly, they taught that believers ought to submit their minds to the mind of the Spirit as revealed in Scripture who will in turn sanctify us. So I think there's an aspect of sanctification that I think is neglected by modern theologians, especially modern Reformed theologians, and and I think this is the Christocentric aspect of it. All we possess in the gospel and in our Christian life has been bought and done by Christ. Christ grants to us everything that he himself purchased. So according to John 1.16, whatever grace we receive for our holiness first belonged to our Savior. He was justified in the Spirit, 1 Timothy 3.16, and so we are justified. He says in John 17.19, for their sakes I sanctify myself, and so we are sanctified. Every gift we receive is actually true of Christ Jesus himself. Christ lived by faith and he was empowered by the Holy Spirit and relied on the Holy Spirit all throughout his life. And so he had a faith. Jesus trusted God. He believed every word from God. So the fact is that we are granted something that he has and he has purchased for us as a pioneer of our faith, as it says in Hebrews 12. So Jesus had to live by faith in God because as it says in Hebrews eleven six, without faith, it is impossible to please God. He has given that which he himself has merited and lived by. Richard Sibbs writes that we must know that all things are first in Christ and then in us. So, There is no grace we accept, whether faith, justification, sanctification, adoption, or glorification, that was not first present in Christ. We are to follow the example of him or the imitation of him. I want to read a a quote from Mark Jones's book on antinomianism that displays the, the synergy of Christ's sanctification. Without question, the obedience offered by Christ from the cradle to the grave was his obedience, but he was obedient in the power of the Holy Spirit. He never uttered a kind word nor thought a good thought except in reliance upon the spirit of holiness. There was a perfect synergy involved in Jesus' human obedience and the Holy Spirit's influence as he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. A careful analysis of Christ's life reveals that at the most significant points in it, his conception, his birth, his baptism, preaching ministry, death and resurrection, the Holy Spirit was present, enabling him in all that he was required to do. So therefore, just like Christ, those who are in him are going to depend on the Holy Spirit for all their actions and live in synergy for their sanctification. Jones goes on to write, although man is completely passive at the moment of regeneration, he cooperates with God in sanctification. 
As noted above, Christ's obedience was truly his own. His own faculties were involved, but that does not mean that only his faculties were involved. He, like us, relied upon the Holy Spirit for his holiness, as it says in Isaiah 11.2. Now, the reality that Christ lived by a true faith that he himself possessed, that he walked in synergy with the Holy Spirit and reliance on him, puts a certain luster on the glory of his obedience that is imputed to us. That is, that this isn't him just walking through life as though, though he is a robot with no will or ability of his own. This isn't him struggling to live by faith every day to trust God. It wasn't him being a superman either. This righteousness that is imputed to us is a righteousness that was won by Christ in the most excruciating manner at times. Imagine just how difficult it was for the Son of Man who possessed a truly human will and mind to suffer all throughout his life under the weight of his impending death. So we have to do justice to how difficult it was. We can't just say he didn't have faith, he lived by sight. Those that deny that Christ lived by faith on earth are actually doing a disservice to him and his work of justification by denying him of a true faith. So as Christ lived by faith in his sanctification, we too must live by faith. So we're on to man's work in sanctification. Thomas Kempis, who wrote The Imitation of Christ, which remains a Christian classic on sanctification, said that it is a rare thing for a Christian to break a single, uh, single bad habit in the course of his lifetime. There are times when Christians ask, how can I be a Christian and yet have a, such a deep and profound struggle with my flesh? Dr. Sproul notes that if we have been walking with God for a long time, we can find comfort in looking back over the course of our Christian lives and recognizing that God has been reshaping us and giving us real progress in the Christian faith. Now, to be shaped and molded by, into the image of Christ and to be brought into spiritual maturity with other saints is a long-term process. Since we live in a culture that is constantly trying to provide instant gratification, instant ways to get rich, instant ways to get the best body of dreams, the next pill to get instantly healthy, we want to know how we can be sanctified in 10 easy steps, but there are no 10 easy steps. Sanctification is a lifelong process that involves an enormous amount of intensive labor. R. Kent Hughes, in his book on the disciplines of godly man, writes, The successful Christian life is a sweaty affair. No discipline, no discipleship, no sweat, no sainthood. Michael Horton, in his book entitled Ordinary, writes, But I am convinced that we have drifted from the true focus of God's activity in this world. It is not to be found in the extraordinary, but the ordinary every day. The problem is not that we are too active, but that we are recklessly frenetic. We have grown accustomed to quick fixes and easy solutions. We have grown accustomed to running sprints instead of training for the long-distance marathon. We have plenty of energy. The danger is that we will burn ourselves out on restless anxieties. Now, this should give us pause. We should not fall into two extremes, one being activism, which is essentially the heresy of self-righteousness, in which people attempt to attain self-righteousness by their own efforts. The other heresy is quietism. Proponents of quietism teach that sanctification is exclusively the work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Christians do not need to be exercised about it. They need only to be quiet and move and let the Holy Spirit do all the work. They inadvertently say the popular mantra, let go and let God. There's another, perp- There's another pair of heresies that are very prominent even in modern Christian circles. The first is legalism. There are Baptist cults that uh, Frank and even Anne-Marie got out from that teach that the law of God is so important to sanctification that they add to the law. So in order to assist in their sanctification, they try to legislate where God has left men free. 
This should be differentiated from pulling up people to higher standards of holiness as the Puritans did. Some people mistakenly throw the, the, a charge of legalism when you try to tell them to grow in holiness. But legalism is a new law that is created, a pseudo-law, whereas true holiness brings you into more conformity to the law of God. Now, the other error, error is uh, antinomianism, an extremely simplistic and just going to the etymological root of the word of antinomianism means against the law or those who are breaking the law. Very simply, uh, antinomianism is a spirit of a person who ta- seeks to take advantage of God's grace and love. He thinks that where the Bible says where sin increased, grace abounded all the more in Romans 5.20 means that he should pursue sin to even greater measures so that he can get even more grace. However, the Apostle Paul goes on to ask his readers a rhetorical question. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He answers his, in question by, he answers his own question. He says, by no means. So we should not say that we can live in sin and God will forgive us later and that will be okay. Like the antinomian teachers teach, but we should actively and painfully and very seriously take action against the sins that are trying to kill us. Imagine you have a case where a husband or wife is cheating on their spouse. You would not go up to them and say, there is grace. You can cheat on your husband and God will forgive you later. No, absolutely not. You'd say Christ's words in Romans 8.13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So holiness has a real look to it. And it's not just about refraining from evil, but doing the opposite. So in Ephesians 4.25, those who lie must now speak the truth. In verse 28, those who used to steal should now work in order to be generous. And we should not have it in our minds to grieve the Holy Spirit, as it says in verse 30. And what should be the motive for this? We can look to verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. So why do you live in holiness? Because of how God carefully, tenderly, and mercifully treated us in Christ, and because we are now temples of the Holy Spirit, we should act like it and we should not wish to grieve him. Therefore, the Christian faith remains a positive one in the aspect that our living is defined not just by what we do, not just by what we do, do not do, but also by what we do. For example, I do not work on Sunday, but should be balanced by I get to worship with my brother and sisters and the Lord and enjoy a day of rest. So there are two aspects of holiness that we should remember. One is mortification, and the other is vivification. Consistent with the London Baptist Confession of Faith, we affirm that we are made new creatures in Christ. Chapter 13 says, They who are united to Christ, affectionately called and regenerated, have a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. Joe Beakey and Mark Jones quote William Perkins' definition of sanctification and break it up into two parts in their Puritan theology. They write, Sanctification has two parts. The first is mortification when the power of sin is continually weakened, consumed, and diminished. The second is vivification, by which inherent righteousness is really put into them and afterwards is continually in- increased. I'll repeat William Perkins' uh, definition. Sanctification has two parts. The first is mortification, when the, power of sin continue, when the power of sin is continually weakened, consumed, and diminished. And the second is vivification, by which inherent righteousness it's really put into them, and afterward, is continually increased. Now, before I get into mortification, I would like to ask another question, consistent with the doctrine of total depravity. We talked about this in the men's group. Um, so is, is a Christian, a born-again Christian, who 
is regenerate, totally depraved. That's open to the floor. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Anyone disagree with brother? Okay. Yes, Bob. Yeah. Yep. So I don't think Christians are totally depraved anymore. So God has given us a new heart, as sister says, a heart of flesh. And so as a result, our, our status has been radically altered. We're no longer slaves of Satan, as Pastor Bob mentioned in his sermon. We're children of God and slaves to God. There is another sense in which we are able to please God, as it says in First Thessalonians 2.4, because we are in Christ. Paul refers to Christians as the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. Now, it's an incredible truth that despite indwelling sin, we are nevertheless referred to either explicitly or implicitly as those who are righteous, holy, pure, and good. Now, if we were not identified in those ways, then how could we possibly perform righteous, good, holy, and pure works toward God? As Christians, we instantly recoil from the idea that we are good. But the New Testament speaks far more positively about the regenerate person in a positive way than it does negatively. But if we understand our goodness in relationship to God's grace, our identity in Christ, our union with Christ, our adoption into his family, and the indwelling of the Spirit, then we can say that we are good to the glory of God. Our Lord explicitly says, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. Now we can command only, good, only people who are good to do good. Hence, life in the Lord Jesus Christ is the essential prerequisite for being good and doing good before God. Nonetheless, we still have an operating evil that is with us everywhere we go, and that is indwelling sin or our flesh. Paul uses the imagery of a Roman torture to describe how this works. Now, the Romans were pretty barbaric in how they would torture people. They would tie a person, a dead person, to the back of a prisoner as a form of punishment, and the, 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 the prisoner would have to smell the rotting corpse, feel the decay, hear the flies buzzing around him, and have to pull him all the way along. Now, with us, indwelling sin is the same way. We are new creatures, but we have this decaying, evil corpse that we have to tug with us. In response to the mortification of sin, Paul speaks of this point extremely forcefully in Romans 8.13. For you live, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. 
but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He is able to speak this forcefully and give this gospel command because he has provided the necessary theological background, whether in Romans 3 or 6, for us to understand that killing sin by the Spirit is absolutely possible and necessary. For example, in Romans 6, 11 to 14, Paul teaches that the sin's rule has finished for Christians. Verse, verse 11, that sin has, does not possess its authority in our lives, verse 12, which means we serve not sin but God, verse 13, and that we can defeat sin because we live in an age of grace, verse 14. Now, the Puritan William Perkins defined vivification as a process by which inherent righteousness is really put into them, and afterward, it's continually increased. So sanctification involves a truly changed life, repentance, and subsequent obedience. Perkins taught that just as a fire would go out without fuel, so God's children will grow cold and fall away unless God warms them with the new and daily supplies of his grace. Now the ordinary means of grace that God has allowed for us to grow with are through things are like sacraments, prayer, and the preaching of the word on the Lord's day. These ordinary means of grace are where God has chosen us to use for the believers so they might grow in more close conformity to him. As Christians, sanctification affects the entire person. Growth in sanctification will cause us to grow in our intellect and knowledge as we will be able to accept the special revelation of God and that special revelation will turn into applied revelation in our hearts whereas the unbeliever's eyes are blinded. Growth in sanctification will also affect our emotions. Where we once saw the law as condemnatory, we will view it as a pleasing thing to follow. Where we once hated God, we will love and desire to serve him. Now, there are many Christians who are tired of their emotions and just want to be apathetic. But we should recognize that emotions are a gift from God. They are a beautiful thing if you learn to harness them with self-control. I noticed many modern Reformed theologians and masculinity gurus who teach that we should be as Stoics, people who do not show emotion or have emotion. Now, there is some truth to it in the sense that we should not be like those who post themselves crying on social media, but we should see Christ as the example of our faith. He was a man who possessed pure emotions, untainted by sin. He was angry at death when Lazarus died, and he painfully wept. He was anxious before he was going to take the cup of wrath. Now, sanctification will also affect our will. Where our wills were once bound to sin, and was morally corrupt, now we will have a will that has a desire and ability to do good. Sanctification also affects the body. Many non-Christians hold to the naturalistic belief that they are only a collection of cells and nothing more, except when they want to change their gender. Then they somehow magically conjure up a spirit. Anyways, natural, uh, naturalists do not have a reason to maintain that their bodies are physiques, or do not have a reason to maintain their bodies because they have no transcendent purpose undergirding their worldview. Christians, however, have the belief that we are responsible for the bodies that God has given us. We take care of our bodies because God has given this body to us. We desire to get in shape because if we are, if we are out of it and we get out of a state of disease and protect our bodies in self-defense because our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit and we are made in his image. There seems to be a historic error floating around in, in modern Christianity. Many people align with the early Gnostic heresy, the Gnostics taught that spirit, the spiritual was more important than the body, that matter is bad, and that we are trapped in this material world. So the Gnostics didn't care for their bodies. But as Christians who recognize the duality of our personhood, that we, are, we understand that the soul and body are both important, 
I think it is important to care for our bodies because we want to be good stewards of the body that God has given us so we can be more useful for the church and our families and God. And there's another sense in which we are in union with Christ, body and soul, not just our soul. And there's another sense, you might disagree with this, but um, I heard a Reformed theologian talk about it recently. And he says that even our bodies, that even after we die, will be in the ground, and as we are in heaven, our bodies will be mystically united to Christ until he gives us a, a new glorified body. So, Perkins taught that in, in vivification, we possess an inherent righteousness that is put into us and grows all throughout our life. There is another aspect of inherent righteousness that I want to touch on. God will judge us for an inherent righteousness and will show whether we were true Christians. This is one of the reasons why the Reformed Orthodox used to say that the works are necessary for salvation. When we consider the, that the necessity of works for our salvation, salvation is an umbrella term, by the way, and not just an interchangeable term with justification. So there is salvation in the narrow sense, synonymous with justification, and there's salvation in the broad sense, encompassing the entire order of salvation. Just like that, there is gospel in the narrow sense, and there's gospel in the broad sense of the term. So when we consider the necessity of good works for salvation, we are not speaking of the narrow sense of justification, but in the more broader implication of it. So speaking in a broad way, there is a sense in which we think of works as being like food. Eating is an evidence that we have life. If we don't eat for a while, what happens? We die. Just like that, if we do not walk by or live by works in this life, we will die. Works are not just an evidence of a Christian's life, but they are necessary for life. There is a forcefulness to the gospel threatenings and the commands that I do not want to view as just hyperbolic. Now, is there any possible road a Christian can consistently walk on in this life other than the way of works? No. There is only the way of works. The only road we have to eternal life is the road of works. There are two roads. There is the, only, there is the, the broad path for the non-Christian, as Pastor Bob referred to and when we were talking about the confession today, and the narrow path of works for the Christian. For the Christian, we nonetheless have to walk this path of works. No one else can walk it for us to possess eternal life or possess the vision of Christ. But we have to remember something. The path has been prepared out for us. Our works have been predestined. So if we are a child of God, we will walk this road by necessity. And no, not only will we walk this road by necessity, but we will walk it because God has promised that we will walk it. So sanctification, as much as justification, is a gift from Christ. Now the aspect that good works are necessary to salvation is a concept that is, and, and just your vernacular, is a concept that's visible in many Reformed theologians, even before Reformed theologians like the medievals and the patristics. I think even Calvin talks about it pretty, pretty well. Once again, it works like this. Justification by faith alone is the foundation, and you are accepted by God only because of Christ. And you have the right to life. The, the Reformed had the dis- this distinction, the right to life versus the possession of life. So you have the right to life because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. But then you are also given an inherent righteousness which will grow over your life. You will possess eternal life 
if you have inherent righteousness. And now, why will the Christian be able to possess eternal life? Because our works have been prepared for us in advance. That inherent righteousness will also be judged in the last day and be rewarded. Now, it will never be the basis of forgiveness or ultimate acceptance by God, but is a secondary ground for heavenly rewards. Should this cause people to despair regarding the future judgment? Only if one is a hypocrite. Christ will rightfully condemn the hypocrites in the church. They are marked out as those who did not do good works and those who neglect the weightier matters of the law. So there are certain motives, motivations we have to live in holiness. Wayne Grudem, I think, pretty, he, he uh, expounds, expounds on this pretty well. He says the, fir- the, the first motive for holiness is the need to keep a clear conscience before God. The second is the desire to be a vessel honorable use and have increased effectiveness in the work of the kingdom. Third, the desire to see unbelievers come to Christ through observing our lives. Fourth, the desire to receive present blessings from God on our lives and ministries. Five, the desire to avoid God's displeasure and discipline in our lives, sometimes called the fear of God. Now, some people say that after we are saved that God is no longer angry with us. And in a sense, that is true, but we have to distinguish. If you are referring to the condemnatory or vindictive punishments of God toward the godly, that is true. But the Father has paternal castigations toward those whom he loves. So Grudem, in this point, is referring to God's love of complacency or friendship, whereby God delights in his people according to their holiness or Christlikeness. So as you grow in holiness— God will have greater love for you and his love of complacency for you. So the sixth point is the the desire to seek greater heavenly reward. Um, I like what Mark Jones writes in his pocketbook, Guide to Good Works. He writes, Good works are not an option for Christians, but at the same time, they are not to be simply done because they are obligatory. Good works are done for many reasons, such as gratefulness for what God has done for us, One less obvious reason concerns what I call a holy self-interest or the desire to be rewarded by God. Grudem goes on to write in the seventh point, the desire for a deeper walk with God is a motivation. Eight, the desire that angels would glorify God for our obedience. Nine, the desire for peace and joy in our lives. Ten, the desire to do what God commands simply because his commands are right and we delight in doing what is right. Yeah, does anyone else have any comments or questions? Yes, brother. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I think, um, yeah. I think that's, it shows the importance of having a proper burial, burial for a Christian and not just cremation. So there's a significance in that. <laughs> so, yeah, God takes our bodies which are in the grave and he refashions them. And so we'll be just, we'll be um, glorified. We'll be the same person, but glorified. We won't have sin. We won't have misery. Yes, Pastor Paul.
Right. Yeah. So there's positional sanctification, progressive, and then when we're yeah, brother. And I think Naveen covered that pretty well last week. Naveen did a good job of covering that. Yes, brother. Yeah, I think uh, it's a good point you bring up. 
So, especially in, in respect to our justification, there's a sense in which um, the Reformed theologians distinguish between the authoritative aspect of our justification and um, the declarative uh, or demonstrative aspect of our justification. So Thomas Goodwin points out that um, the authoritative is the justification of men's quorum deo before God. And so that has to do with uh, us appearing before him nakedly, and that's for the, our right of salvation or our justification. So, um, but there is also a demonstrative aspect to our justification. According to Goodwin, God will on the day of judgment judge men and put a difference between men, man and man. And upon this account, that the one were true believers when he justified them and the other were unsound in their very acts of faith. So God will therefore make evident for all to see the di- difference between those whom he has truly justified and though, those who, has, who have just professed an outward faith. So, so Goodwin, who has instructed the right of salvation to be received by faith alone, also says that God will not put the possession of salvation upon that private act of his own without having anything else to show for it. So he's, God is going to vindicate himself, his own acts of justification at the final judgment by showing who were the true believers and the evidence for that will be their own good works. So the vindication that God's act of justification can be justified. And so it's important that we also distinguish that um, when God judges according to our own works, uh, we have to be thankful that we, we're not going to be judged, accor- like this is not by our, our merit alone, because thank God that we don't have to fulfill the, the perfect requirements of the, the law. And so Christ fulfills that in his imputed righteousness to us. But we will be judged according to our works and... Uh, the rights of salvation is guaranteed by the merits of Christ alone. Yeah, so. Right. So e- even in the case of works, it, um, God accepts our imperfect works. He sees them as good. So even in our sanctification, he sees our good works as good. I think Turretin talks about this in his uh, systematic theology. But e- even our imperfect words, works or our imperfect deeds, he sees as good. So even if it's tainted by sin, he sees it as good. So we should thank God for that, so that he sees Christ. Yeah. Right. Pastor Paul. Right. Pastor Paul says, growing in grace and the no- growing in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ is the process of sanctification. Yeah. So if there's no other comments or questions, I'll close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are a Trinitarian God who has purposed 
our sanctification. You have bought us. You have cleansed us. You have secured us. We thank you that we don't have to worry, that we can rest in you, and we also work. We thank you that we can rest in the Holy Spirit to work out our salvation. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is holy, who is true, who sanctifies, who is blessed, who is pure. We thank you that the truths we apply, we might be able to, the truths we learn, that we might be able to apply it to our lives and grow in Christ's conformity. We thank you that your word is true and holy, and that we can, we can just appreciate you and enjoy the blessed view of you and one day enjoy you face to face and faith to faith. We thank you for all that you are and all that you do in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.